Hello, everyone, and welcome to Privacy Chats with Rachel and John. I'm Rachel. I'm John. Hi, Rachel. How are you? Great. And should I let you tee up the topic today, John? Well, sure. Yeah. So today we're going to talk about the Digital Markets Act, a fairly new law in the European Union. I feel like we keep going back to the European Union. Um, But before we get into this one, (laughs) yeah, for sure. Um, So before we get into it, I just wanted to offer a disclaimer that Rachel and I are going to be talking about stuff that we just find on the internet. We do our own research for these episodes, um, but we're not representing the opinions or thoughts or anything of anyone else. This is just Rachel and I talking um, with stuff that we find on the open internet. You can find it there yourselves. Yep. Just just us chatting as we might (laughs) offline, but with giant microphones and some earbuds. (laughs) Yes. Right. Okay. Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, so where are we going? Digital Market Act, Markets Act. Um, DMA. So as a, the DMA. So it's actually a pair of acts um, that I get the impression that they were enacted together, but they were like, it was as a, as a package, the Digital Markets Act and the Digital Service Act. I wanted to start off with just talking about the Digital Markets Act. Uh, new EU regulation enacted in September, 2022, there's a bunch of different dates of it coming into effect because of, you know, there has to be kind of a, I guess, a burn-in period or something. Mm-hmm. And the best information that I could find that talked about it is the European Commission itself calls it, uh, you know, the tagline is the Digital Markets Act, colon, ensuring fair and open digital markets. So sounds like they had a whole marketing team coming together to talk about Marketing that. team for the markets regulation exactly yeah so they so they describe it as as they say that some online some large online platforms act as gatekeepers in digital markets and the digital market markets act aims to ensure that these platforms behave in a fair way online together with the digital services act the digital markets act is one of the centerpieces of the european digital strategy so that's kind of where they're coming from the in the eu of what they're what they're trying to accomplish here is is uh, make these large platforms behave fairly. So. Yeah. And um, I, I learned something too when I was discussing this with um, someone else in the industry that the EU frames it as competition law. And in the okay. US, it's more, I mean, what I'm used to hearing shorthand is antitrust law. So I believe those are those two are virtually interchangeable here. Um, but maybe to your point, that's exactly what this is trying to cover is uh, making it fair and and I think accessible to other competitors as well. Um, our main technology companies that are, I think for the most part, all gatekeepers, which I know you can get into a second, they have a very large hold on, I think, the economy through digital media and digital services. So I'm not I, 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 this took a lot of interest um, from me when it was drafted because it made sense and it, it seems like it packages up all of the concerns that advocates, um, legal scholars, um, even consumers have been complaining about or pointing about as kind of unfair advantages that these platforms have and their effects, not just on consumers, but also, I don't know if this is the right way to put it or technical term, but the middlemen between those services. So businesses that you use these platforms to communicate with consumers or sell goods, um, there's just so much that these technology companies um, are intermediaries for. So, yeah, sense. agreed. That I think, like getting to, back to your point about the different terminology that's used, my my initial understanding was that it was about uh, preventing monopolies, um, and you know, come these some of these tech companies can get so big that it's impossible for anyone to compete against them. Um, and I remember, like, this isn't new. There was a. I, I'm not going to remember the details of this, but I want to say back in the it had to be in the 1990s, mid 1990s. Microsoft got in trouble, also in Europe, yeah. um, when they first embedded the, a browser, an internet browser, into its its Windows operating systems. And they, the European, I don't know, Commission or whoever, whatever legal entity was in charge at the time, um, sued them for anti-competitive practices, saying that by by because the browser was was an integrated part of the operating system and couldn't be separated, um, other browsers couldn't really be used on the computer. So you were stuck with with Microsoft's browser, which was Internet Explorer, I think at the time, mm-hmm. which or they had 
they might have bought like Netscape Navigator. So making myself sound old because I remember all of these yeah, things. Yeah. Um, but they did get in trouble in Europe and were essentially forced to separate them. So when we think of browsers today, they're not part of the operating system, but that's what Microsoft's intent was back in the in the beginning. Right. And I mean the the distinction's so slight, but from an unknowing consumer, it kind of seems like that's the direction every technology company has taken outside of that very like specific use case that of course we saw and you know lost something to get fined over probably not anything any company wanted to try again but yeah. we're seeing now in the similar space like there's really no search engine besides uh google with as far as its capabilities and its integrations with other services i read somewhere that google search now has 95 percent of now this wow. was for research but um in the eu market since we're talking about dma here so i mean it it's a lot to uh it's a lot to take in the fact that there's one company one service yeah. with 95 percent of a market share and anyone you walk across the street with wouldn't know the next search engine if you ask them outside of the few the select few that are already very big within their respective communities so what yeah it's true safari right. and that's it it's a very short list right or even for search ends like isn't yahoo still out there isn't that still work yeah, yeah. It's not, it's not, that was that was my favorite back in the day. I mean, back in the day, right? <laughs> um, okay, so let's keep going. So DMA, uh, let's talk about who this applies to. Do you have comments, thoughts? Who does the DMA apply to? Yes, uh, generally gatekeepers, but this is a new term to me as as far yeah. as DMA research or research goes. Um, the idea is that the EU through the European Commission determines who um, is the gatekeeper based on a few criteria. So one is having a strong economic position or a like significant impact um, to the internal market, really the EU here, uh, and is active in multiple EU countries. The next is, you know, has a strong intermediate position, which to my point about middlemen earlier, it, it links a large population of users to a large number of businesses. And there is, you know, many to many relationship with that. So you're in a way, and in, in, this is my opinion here, kind of controlling the means of converse, commerce or interaction on those platforms. Yeah. Um, the last that I saw was um, has or could have um, an entrenched and durable position in the market. So the company has had this sort of market share in, in economy of scale for a stable amount of time. Um, and also beat the two criteria that I mentioned above with having just a strong economic position in the EU and then being an intermediary between services. Yeah. So I, I found the same ones. And just to kind of translate that a little bit, like if I was to apply those three criteria to a company, let's let's talk about Amazon for a minute. So obviously Amazon has, has a very strong economic position across the, the globe, I think, I'm pretty sure. Um <laughs> And that, you know, this intermediary position is, you know, a lot of people think that they're buying things from Amazon, but in most cases, you're actually buying st stuff from another seller and Amazon is just acting as that inter intermediary between you. And they, I think they have lots of different ways of operating. In some cases, they just, are, they're, they're sending the order through to another company, um, or in some cases, the, the, the Amazon acts, I forget what they call it, but they they're essentially a distributor for mm -hmm. another company. So they already have the products there. Yeah, you're but like either a storefront way, that actually stores the physical goods and then says, okay, I'll you know wait for my seller or figure out what to sell and yeah. your own little shop. <laughs> right. So, and then, you know, the third bullet about them then having a, an entrenched and durable position, which I think is, is a, it's, it's very uh, elegant language <laughs> for this, but, um, but over the last uh, two, two or three years, I think. So, you know, obviously a company like Amazon has, has been around for a while. So, so they meet all of the, those criteria, but the, the, um, the digital marketing act goes on to specify uh, particular services. Then also um, there's 10 of them, which include things like um, online search engines, social networks, video sharing platforms, operating systems, web browsers, stuff like that. So it's really, focused on like technology companies that are providing the, you know, the main technologies that we think of today, which a lot of it is social networking, a lot of it is online purchases, uh, YouTube, video sharing, stuff like that. Um, so yeah, so that's the scope. I was a little curious about, yeah, how, how the EU goes about determining a, say a new gatekeeper. I mean, they've, they've coined their six, which we can get to after this, but um, if a new 
service were to emerge, like what what would be the process of determining whether it's a gatekeeper or not? I think obviously it's not a gatekeeper if it's small and hasn't been around for a while. Um, but I, I was wondering what what that process would have been like. And there's a little little snippet in there that the the European Commission provided, which is that there's a five month long investigation to determine gatekeeper eligibility typically. Um, and all it really says here is that it would, you know, ascertain whether a significant substantial rebuttal was, I mean, these fancy words here, but, um, summarizing it, if the company doesn't believe, uh, they're a gatekeeper, but say the EU does, they have a little period to justify, um, why they don't believe they are. And if the EU has, I imagine like overseen a detail or it's working off, you know, I don't know, not real facts. I, I can't imagine what a rebuttal would you know mean in a rejection if we have enough justification to go start this investigation but there is there is an opportunity to say hey no I, we don't think we're gatekeepers and this is why um but i don't think that was the case for any of the six that were identified by the eu at least for this rollout of dma i know that the so we're looking at the i said there was kind of a rolling timeline of when it became into effect so it, from my research, it first went into force on November 1st, 2022, um, and became applicable on May 2nd, 2023. So there was a six-month period there. And so as of that date, May 2nd, 2023, I think is when all of these companies needed to submit something. Mm-hmm. Um, Probably that rebuttal. Yeah, I guess it's a rebuttal, but like, you know, what, what, uh, there has to be some trigger that identifies uh, what companies even have to submit that. Like, is mm-hmm. it just because you're a technology company or is it based on your size? Or, you know, if I'm just running an, if I own a gas station, do I have to? Like, obviously, <laughs> yeah. obviously not. There's but no like self service point, form. Yeah. Right. But at some point, there's got to be a gray area between the technology companies and other, other services, like, you know, the financial industry. They're providing a lot of these online services, but they're mm-hmm. like, are they technology companies? Um, so I don't have the answer to that question, but it's a really good question. Um, I'll stop shaking the desk because the video is shaking here. Um, the, so exciting. Uh, I know. The, um, so, however, so the part that I do know is, is the companies that had to submit something with, when this went into effect on May 2nd, 2023, that gave the, you said a five-month period, but by September of 2023, uh, the European Union or the European Commission had uh, made their determinations. And like you said, there were six companies that were selected, the, mm-hmm. the big winners, um, who were <laughs> who were de- designated gatekeepers. And those six companies were Alphabet, most people know that as Google, um, Amazon, Apple, ByteDance, which most people know as TikTok, uh, Meta, which most people know as Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, and other things, and Microsoft. So those are the six companies. And that, you know, then there was different products within those companies that were, you know, core platforms that, you know, fell into the DMA. But there were specific things that were uh, not found to be gatekeeping services. So for example, Gmail was not, which I find surprising, but I guess it doesn't meet the criteria because it's not really an intermediary. It's just Mm -hmm. an email service. Outlook.com, which is also an email service from a different company. And then the Samsung intranet browser, which is interesting because other browsers were included. Um, Like, yeah, Chrome and Safari were browsers that are included. So, I wonder, and I I was trying to read between the lines because I was surprised about gmail and i was surprised to not see ios messenger at all here and i i want to assume it's because they're not and i saw this as one qualifier of of dma as being a a number independent interpersonal communication service and i don't know why i didn't click right away but just meaning that you don't need a phone number or a phone plan to use that messaging service I wonder if that was a carve out there because I don't see those following under any other categories as well. I mean, cloud well, I did services. find, <laughs> yeah. So I did find that they are they're they're continuing to investigate four specific services. Those are Bing, Edge, Microsoft's advertising, and Apple iMessage. So is that what you meant by iOS? Yeah, I, like they yeah. they weren't sure yet, but that understandably could still be ongoing and. Maybe there's enough, ju- enough justification during that first round to say, hey, we need we need a rebuttal again. I don't know. 
Right. So, so now that those six companies have been selected as the big winners, um, I'm sure that they don't feel like big winners because <laughs> I'm sure it's just a lot of work for them. Yes. Um, but gate, gatekeepers now have until March 6th, 2024 to comply with all of the provisions. So get to work, those yeah. six companies. What are, I mean, there are clearly benefits here or else um, one of our more renowned um, regional you know, area folks over in the EU wouldn't be proposing such uh, massive legislation on some of the most profitable and, and well-known companies across the world. Um, I mean, just going on a whim here, I, I interpreted a lot of any anti-competition, antitrust laws being better for innovation consumer protection um, with added competition and more inclusive economic growth, since I think especially technology is very heavily sourced from the U.S. and from China as of recently. So to me, that that screams more of the importance to make sure that everyone is participating in this global economy fairly and through consistent rules that the EU um, reflects through other areas of their um, their treaties and, and their, um, you know, their legal doctrines. So what are benefits do you that you anticipate coming out of DMA? Well, I think that I think that the real benefit is that um, so I, well, I think that these companies need to separate their role as you know this this the provider or seller of you know some of the end services that we think of. So I'll I'll, I'll frame this from an, my view of Amazon perspective. Um, so Amazon is is a seller of products. Okay, but it's also this this gatekeeper. It's a host that puts puts uh, buyers and sellers together. I think it needs to separate those two functions that it's that it that it provides. Um, obviously, it's selling products that don't the products that it has don't even make things. I don't know. I don't know if um, they do anymore. I remember that being yeah, a yeah. possibility many many years ago. Yeah. Anyway, so but but separate that from the fact that they're 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 a gatekeeper of putting people together and mm -hmm. and and not putting the 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 part of their company that sells things ahead of other companies that sell things in its gatekeeper role. So as as a gate gatekeeper, it's putting buyers and sellers together. Buyers and sellers need to be able to get together. It fairly, no matter who they are. So mm -hmm. Amazon can't, you know, make it easier for me to get to Amazon as a seller than to get to a different company as a seller. Um, and I said, I listened to a podcast recently that talked about um, some of the podcast about that, a podcast, <laughs> very meta. I, well, I know it was, but it was about Amazon's practices of really uh, trying to drive down prices. Mm -hmm. And like, if they were, if they had somebody was selling a product on their platform. And they found the price cheaper somewhere else, like that the company was selling their product cheaper on a different platform than on micro than on than on Amazon. Mm -hmm. um, they 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 presented the information differently on the website, so it was less likely that people would buy things from them. Um, so that to me sounds like an unfair practice. They're putting in one method over another right. for like one seller, yeah. one provider versus another. Um, so overall, I think that the, as a consumer, um, it should make it easier for me to get to whatever companies that I want to buy products from. Right. I, and I, the analogy I think of, I mean, you were talking about Amazon and I've, I've made this in, in my mind with interpreting this, kind of like having an Amazon mall and all of your stores are all the, all the, the plenty of variety of stores from your naked eye, but yeah. in the background, in the, in the stocking room and, you know, where the actual transactions are taking place in these stores it's all Amazon, <laughs> but we, you know, we think they're different services and they're uh, different providers and sellers with their own benefits and their own, you know, competition between one another. And it's yeah. just an illusion, right? So I totally agree that we need to increase transparency to, to tell both individuals and then businesses operating in that environment, who's actually in charge of what in the, the, yes, an equal priority on things like ranking algorithms and search algorithms through those platforms. Yeah, well, it's true. But the reality is that if you want to sell things online, um, one of the places that you can probably do that most successfully is through Amazon. Yeah, um, they have that economy so of scale built already. They have they all do. their users there. You don't have to bring someone to another third website, fourth website. It's like uh, instinctive to people at this point. Right. And I can't imagine like it's it's it might be possible, for example, for Walmart to to be able to to lure people to a, to a different website than than Amazon's and sell products. But they, you know, again, they've got the economies of scale. 
Um, Walmart doesn't show up on the list here, but I'm not sure how big they are across Europe. And also they're, they don't tell themselves yeah, across Europe, technology for sure. company. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, so yeah, I think, so my answer to your question, I actually want to get to the next part of, um, of what are the, what are the rules? So on the European commission website, there's some examples of do's that the gatekeep platforms have to do. And one is to, uh, to allow third parties to interoperate with the gatekeepers own service uh, in certain specific situations, um, allow their business users to access the data that they generate in their use of the gatekeeper's platform. So they're essentially being open and transparent with their with their customers. Um, provide companies advertising on their platform with the tools and information necessary for advertisers and publishers to carry out their own independent verification of their advertiser advertisements hosted by the gatekeeper. And the last one that they list was to allow their business users to promote them to promote their offer and conclude contracts with their customers outside the gatekeepers platform. So I can use the gatekeepers platform to to establish a connection with a customer, but then it's okay for me to take that relationship offline and not have to work through the gatekeeper to to have that relationship on uh, you know continue to operate. Yeah. So uh, that very yeah. last do was actually new to me in my research. So say, you know, there's, I'm going to use the Amazon example. I'm looking for footwear on Amazon. A okay. result from Birkenstock pops up. I'm buying sandals for my partner. Sure. I go to purchase the shoes and I can go through Amazon or perhaps there's another link to buy it through Birkenstock, for example, that's maybe clear and and inconspicuous to me as I'm entering the website. Is that how you're picturing it? Yeah, I guess as long as it's, I think that they're just looking for fairness in, in, Mm -hmm. in the ways that that happens. Um, Cause you know, unfortunately, and I'm guilty of doing this myself is, is I'll, I'll go to a, a website that belongs to a company that makes something to look for the products that I want. And then I'll go to Amazon to see if I can get it cheaper somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, in a lot of cases, you can't. Well, yeah, Amazon's is, a cheaper one. Yeah. I've um, had that experience too. And it actually makes me wonder about, and I don't know how this will play out. I guess we'll just have to see. But any adverse consequences for, and now aside from consumer protections for things like privacy and security, but for like pricing for us, right? If we cease to have an Amazon, which has taken advantage of the lack of these rules, um, you know, whether morally, you know, wrong or not is, is kind of outside the question here, but they have this advantage of having all of the data to figure out how much something costs, where uh-huh. to boost it in my algorithm, what I've bought in the past. Um, and they're able to extract that into a way that can make a product cheaper for me, whether yeah. I know how is kind of indifferent. It could be cheaper arbitrarily or artificially, or it could really be less expensive and they still make a profit off of it. Now that they essentially won't be able to compete in the way of having this information asymmetry, will that mean greater prices for us as consumers? Maybe in the short term, but I wonder if over the long term it'll settle out as companies that are targeting users figure out how to basically play, you know, against in a classical competition sense and outside of this weird Amazon world we've been in for a while. But I have no idea how that's going to work. I don't know. Yeah, that's that's a really good question, and I don't I don't know that we'll ever actually know the answer. Like, did I don't have enough information as a result? to make right. a determination on that right now. Because because I think that the reality is, like, you could say that in some ways Amazon has has had a monopoly, mm-hmm. um, but they've also achieved that by being purposeful about keeping prices low. Mm-hmm. I think that's one of their main goals: is keep prices low. Um, so it, you know if. You know, t- usually you would say that when there's greater competition, prices are more likely to go down mm-hmm. for consumers. Um, but in this case, you're, you you make a really good point that Amazon won't be able to do what Amazon does, which essentially drives prices down. Yeah. Um, so I, I I don't know, but I think in the end, I think competition is is good, and you know we do want the the smaller emerging, even the smaller mom and pop companies to to be able to survive and, and thrive not have and to wait honestly, to be acquired by one of these big yeah uh, gatekeepers I, or online platforms to achieve that 
Right. And if I have to pay just a little bit more, I'm not gonna, I'm not willing to pay a lot more, but if I mm -hmm. have to pay a little bit more for that to be true, then I'm okay with that. As well as the consumer protections that come with not just paying a little bit more, but with the package mm -hmm. of this regulation, um, which brings us to the examples of the don'ts. Should I go ahead and, and cover those? Yeah, go for it. Sure. Okay. So gatekeepers can no longer, gatekeeper platforms can no longer treat services or products offered by gatekeepers more favorably in terms of ranking. Uh, so more services or products. So really everything we covered, you can't, you can't put Amazon as one and Birkenstock as two in my example. Um, right. Yeah. Prevent customers from linking businesses outside of their platform. So it's the inverse of the last do we talked about, which is yeah. you can't block access to Birkenstock.com. Um, you pr can't prevent users from uninstalling any pre-installed software app if they wish to. So that goes back to kind of the Microsoft example. I know it's, you know, in their operating system, but um, probably a better example is uh, Apple or, or Google and their phones. So if I don't want, I don't know, my notes app anymore, because it's taking 0 0.05 gigabytes. I don't know. For any reason, I should be able to remove sure. it. Um, and then last track users outside of their Gatekeeper's core platform service for the purpose of targeted advertising. And this is really interesting to me because I think quite a few gatekeepers fall under kind of the category of the ability to do this. Um, and of course, you know, without effective consent being granted. So you can't treat consent in one place as consent in another as far as following you for targeted advertising means. So I'll just keep using the Amazon Birkenstock example. If I go out and I go to Birkenstock.com, um, Amazon can't, without giving me very clear and informed consent, track me online um, for the purpose of figuring out, you know, building my platform on Amazon.com, figuring out what I'll buy next, how, how much I paid for those shoes, right? They can't do yeah. that without my consent. Yeah, um, fair, nor should they. And and all of this makes me wonder, did Birkenstock pay you to mention them this many times? No, and I can clear that up. I, I do love their <laughs> shoes though, and I am probably wearing some 50% of the time I'm not in a, in a formal workouting. Okay. Well, maybe if this if this episode goes viral, maybe you should reach out to them and ask for some free product. It'd be a couple of days too late because I did buy some for as a gift. <laughs> <Got> <laughs> so maybe I could have done this an episode ago. Oh, sorry. <laughs> okay. Um all right, let's talk about consequences. So the the consequences for companies, which and this hasn't come up yet because you know these uh, six companies were just identified in September. They have until March sixth to comply, um, and I'm so I suspect that there's going to be a period of time um, that before you know they're not going to come in on March seventh and say mm -hmm. you don't comply. Um, so I would imagine that they would have to observe their behavior for a period of but time. But perhaps lawsuits might prop up because this is, you know, publicly available information to us. Who knows who's prepared to, but ideally we've changed our practice. Sorry, we as in the companies have changed their practices beforehand. I'm just I'm just remembering when GDPR came out, it was I don't think a month before Max Schrems came out with a yeah. lawsuit citing GDPR and so, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you're you're raising a question that I'm I'm kicking myself that I didn't include this in my research of, of is there a private right of action included in this law? And I I don't know oh, the interesting. answer. Interesting. So so the GDPR, you know, very specifically had a private right of action, which which allowed for, you know, your example, Max Schrems, um, to you know sue, I think it was it was uh, Facebook at the time, mm -hmm. um, immediately, like day one. Um, I don't know if the DMA has a private right of action, so I'm going to take that as a as a homework item to to do some research on that. Um, however, so with the with the consequences for companies, eventually um, fines of up to ten percent of the company's total worldwide annual turnover, or up to twenty percent in the event of of repeated infringements. So to put that in 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 scope, so Google according to my research, for their annual revenue for 2022 was $279.8 billion. So if they were fined 10% uh, of that, $28 billion, or on the higher end, 20% 20, 20 if it was a repeated infringement, $56 billion. That's quite so a range, but the range starts pretty high. It, it is. So I can't imagine a company 
being, I don't know what the highest fine, is. I know it is, it's in the billions. I don't know what the highest fine a company has paid. I don't know if it's double digit billions though. That's, that's where I would be surprised if I hadn't heard about that yet, especially with respect to technology companies. Right. I mean, the, yeah, the largest one I'm aware of is 5 billion. We won't talk too much about that, but <laughs> um, the, uh, but tw- I can't imagine. Ten, so 10% of, of any company's total worldwide annual revenue is, it, that's huge. Um, I wonder what the logic was for this too. I wonder if we've, I mean, there's private right of action, as you pointed out in other legislation, but I wonder if say GDPR is 4% fines, you know, we have a few years to reflect on it, perhaps as a deterrent, it's not enough Mm -hmm. given the revenue of these technology companies and their really ability to grow off of sidestepping these rules in, in a future where they are fined. Um, because in reality, the the reason why technologies are so technology companies listed as gatekeepers are so powerful mm-hmm. is a lot to do with their revenue and their ability to invest early and often and kind of name their own price for any acquisition. And perhaps this is a, a penalty to try to uh, reverse that. Isn't hey, like this should be a scary fine for not just anyone, but for tech companies as well. Yeah, and I suspect there's some scare tactic in there also, because mm-hmm. like you know the way it's listed is that the fines are up to ten percent. Um, I don't know what their actual you know calculation would be of yeah. how much the fines. And would, I'm sure those fi- fines get lower as investigations are done, and there's proof of maybe an attempt to you know comply with rules. And there, I know there are a lot of factors that are uncovered through the kind of administrative side of the investigation that can in some cases, lower it from the initial, like, oh, this is about to be a $1.4 billion fine, and then eventually it becomes a $500 million one. I wonder if right. the same thing would happen here in, in the event of enforcement. Yeah, I would hope. And, you know, I, I, I suspect that the, the 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 highest fines would be for a company that just, you know, chooses to ignore the law altogether. <laughs> um, and then they get told, well, no, you really need to do this, and they get fined and still ignore it. Um, so yeah, I think it's a scare tactic to get companies to, to comply, but, you know, based on, you know, just things that I've read in, in the industry that companies really are getting ready for it. Yeah. Um, these, these six companies in in particular, um, I'm sure there's going to be others in the future, but I, I think, I think companies are taking it seriously, but I guess we'll know after March 6th. Yep. Uh, so so where else are we at on dates? Cause I know we had a few, well, Gatekeepers in yeah. 2024. Yeah, that's our last one. And then I guess we'll have to do a follow-up with enforcement actions. Mm-hmm. But we covered why. Um, we covered enforcement. Should we talk about the DSA and the relationship with DMA a bit more next? I know. Well, uh, there's a, there's a, so there's a there's a uh there was an actual quote from one of the articles. Oh no, it wasn't an article. So in the DMA, the DMA starts off with a bunch of legal mumbo jumbo and then has the, just the word whereas dot 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 and goes through like a whole bunch of different provisions i think there was like 109 of them but one of them it was i think it was whereas number two said an example of such characteristics of core platform services is extreme scale economies which often result from nearly zero marginal costs and add biz- to add business users or end users which is really kind of you know pointing out the the just the reality of the monopoly that they hold Mm -hmm. um you know for another company to come in and try and uh, you know generate users cost Mm -hmm. them a lot um, yeah what's a small expense for a a large company with all these you know servers already ready to take in the traffic is a way larger undertaking for a small startup attempting to maybe be a better google that just doesn't have the infrastructure for it yet and then also the the user adoption because of the lack of infrastructure that makes other parts of the service more convenient because it's cheaper yeah yeah okay um i think you were trying to get us on track there so let's let's see yeah let's compare it to the digital services act so um what are what are what's the key difference in your in my research yeah um well in, in quotes, the main goal is to prevent illegal or and harmful activities online and the spread of disinformation. Um, that, mm-hmm. that was one quote I took. I mean, it's very straightforward enough, but also ensuring user safety, protecting fundamental rights, um, and creating a fair and open online platform environment, which I see a lot of overlaps between, obviously, the DMA, the protection of fundamental rights, and, and uh, you know, protecting end users gives a lot of 
GDPR vibes. <laughs> um, but it went into effect, I saw in August 2023 for very large online platforms, the the VLOPs. Um, these can be social media platforms, online marketplaces, and search engines. Yeah. And to be clear, so now that we're moving into a different law, um, the Digital Marketing Act applied to only those six companies because they're gatekeepers. Right. But the Digital Services Act applies to a much broader scope of companies that are providing different things. And the, the key difference that I saw is that the the, the DMA like really seemed to be controlling competition and you know limiting monopolies, whereas the, the Digital Services Act is really looking at the 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 functions and how these platforms operate. So the 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 key uh, provisions are about content moderation, mechanisms for handling user complaints, transparency of algorithms, which I want to come back to that. Mm -hmm. um, cooperation with authorities and measures to prevent spreading illegal content. So it's more about how these platforms operate and um, you know what's what's out there and. Yeah. yeah, this it, it echoes a lot of concerns. I think the U.S. is attempting to address in state and even some nationally proposed legislation with respect to, yes, algorithmic use of algorithms in kind of social media platform in, in circumstances, but also the the profiling profiling of children using these services as well, yeah. the protection of minors on any online platform um, in the EU and. There are a, a plethora of more child safety oriented bills flying around, but this seems to take a very close and special look at social media and, like we said, the rules on recommendation systems with respect to minors and adults in in the transparency sense. Yeah, agreed. And you know, clearly, both both of us um, uh, feel very strongly about protecting minors online. Like we've done a whole episode about it here, and probably talk about it every time we do a chat. Um, <laughs> But one of the things that struck me is the the transparency of, transparency of algorithms. Um, I think it's important and not a whole lot of people pay attention to it because I, really very few people even understand what algorithms are and how the how it affects how these platforms work. Mm -hmm. um, I stumbled across uh, something on the European Commission's website when I was looking that this April, April 2023, the Commission, la Commission launched the European Center for Algorithmic Transparency, um, which said it was the first of its kind scientific center, uh, which will support the Commission and national authorities in the moderating or monitoring of the compliance with the DSA. Um, so, and I'm going to go through some lists of what this Commission or what this European Center for Algorithmic Transparency, ECAT, uh, will do. It's going to conduct technical tests on algorithmic systems to understand their functioning, analyze transparency reports, risk assessments, and independent audits, support investigations and investigations, or investigations and inspections, identify emerging risks associated with the with the use of you know very line, very large online platforms, and act as a knowledge hub for research conducted, thanks to access to data provided by the DSA. So I, I think they're they're really going to be the eyes and ears of, you know, representing us of what's happening with these algorithms, because we don't understand it of, yeah. of what they what the the impact of them can be. Um, mm. I don't know. Do you have thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean, I, the algorithm aspect of it and how it's shaping society. I think I'm not proposing this, but I could do a whole episode about that because it's just one of the most perplexing phenomenons to me in human history um about how we have what or orwell would have called thinking machines right in our hands yeah. right um yeah. they're great resources but the fact that there is a, a third party determining what you will see and process and again if you're on social media it's kind of your, your whole purpose i'm there to look at photos read stuff right it, it's de determining for me um based on my best interests but there's kind of an illusion of agency on what my best interest is based on, right. yes, my previous history, what I've liked. However, the service decides to like weight my interactions against my profile and determine what I want next. Um, that I, I don't, I'm really struggling to see a, a world or a reality where 
outside of me maybe having control over things I don't want to see and having more clear options um, based on the content I'm looking at, how algorithmic transparency will work. Because I think on one end, it's intellectual property in a lot of cases, right? If you figure out how to optimize for what users want to see, like that's that's a whole product in, in and of itself. It's essentially what TikTok has done for videos um, amongst a whole, whole host of other data. But um, it's it could be arguably intellectual property, but it's also one that is so complex and embedded in so many different, very minute data types and interactions that you, I mean, it, it would be hard to really process that for me. And, and how would you display that to me as I'm using the service? It's always thinking and it's always consuming my interactions and my peers' interactions. And I think I can mm -hmm. say this for all social media. So a lot of jumble to say, I, I'm really interested to see how that works, this algorithmic transparency idea. Yeah, because I think that the what, what people don't realize is that these algorithms, without you knowing it, are able to control what you think. And what mm -hmm. you what you what you do as a mm -hmm. result of that. I mean, it you shapes know, your worldview in a way. That. If I'm on a platform and I expect it to be yeah. very even and universally available information, but I'm the only one being served that pattern of content, then it's not really a real reflection of the real world. It's my real world based on what yeah. a very smart system has determined that I most likely will want to see, not guaranteed. I get it wrong all the time. Um, yeah, but yes, it, it influences you, and and I think that over time, when it compounds on enough information, it can get you down into these terrible wormholes of just, yes, disinformation is a, a concern on here for sure, but it can do it in a way that kind of masks it as, hey, this is normal, this is life, a lot of people think, act, you know, work like you, and this is another interest you might, you know, like find compelling, and it's maybe something yeah. completely wrong and made up, and we have no tools to kind of assess that unless we were explicitly told, hey, this is, this is, I don't know, something you, you saw because you liked Birkenstocks and now you're, I don't know, left field in yeah. this other content. But no. you, you know what I'm saying. I do, I do. And, and I think so when I was looking at this, when I was into this rabbit hole on the algorithmic stuff, um, there was a conference that this organization, the ECAT, held earlier this year. And one of the, I don't know if he was a keynote speaker or introducing something, but his name was uh, Mikel Landabasso. Uh, Director of Fair and Sustainable Economy from the Joint Research Center. And part of it, it really struck me what he said in his intro. He was talking about why we're here today. And this is a, an exact quote from his speech. And he said, algorithms are here to stay. They are here influencing the way we think, the things we read, the people we follow, the things we buy, the people we vote for, and sometimes they are telling us what to think. And the scary part, and he's right, but the scary part about it is all of that happens without us even realizing it has happened. Like we, mm -hmm. I, we think something and I think, well, that's what I think, mm -hmm. but you don't realize you're thinking that because you were influenced into thinking you that because <laughs> you were, yeah. And you just, it just happened subliminally in some ways that you don't even realize it or, and, and it's not even because of what you were shown you know, maybe it's because of the, of what you weren't shown. Like mm -hmm. if you're, if you're only ever shown yeah. Birkenstocks, you never, ever you know need conflicting about, like, evidence. Yeah, yeah. To know that other shoes exist. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, yeah. So now, now I need some, some, some product from Birkenstock. Too, so I <laughs> This is a whole marketing campaign right here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I hope one of our listeners knows somebody there and reaches out and says, Hey, you got to listen to this. There. No, um, I mean, that's really true. There's nothing we don't, rely on information for some source of information for, and I'm, I'm speaking kind of broadly, sorry, I don't, <laughs> but I think a lot of um, individuals can can feel that way, especially when you're put in a world where now, you know, and, and this is maybe outside of DSA, but you're the most ideal way to sign up for new online services could be a login portal through one of these applications. So you basically have one there to use later, or you've already had it. So there's much more dependence being built on central platforms. And, you know, it's scary that they can amass this much information about you without a lot more, and, and they're getting better, but more formal tools to help you control what you see and don't want to see. But it's not like I can sift through all, you know, however some billion of content and say, yeah. yes, no, yes, no. It has to do that reach for me based on its massive neural networks of other profiles that interacted somewhere to me. Um, 
but but it's important because I think it it the more time goes on and many books have been written on this, we we can steer in a world where our agency is just eroded more and more based on how much convenience we give up for you know products or finding information seeking it but there's yeah. there's always a, a bit of a abstraction that needs to be removed to get me what i want the soonest and mm -hmm. the more that's removed the more it's on the obligation of the service to tell me that which i don't think i want either i think we're all happy to be in a world where we can freely exchange information that's not through what were classically the very um siloed information sources which were cable news radio um it seems like we did this explosion and, and now if we kind of keep going that direction we'll start siloing ourselves back to the few i don't know channels we had on tv if i'm making an analogy yeah. pre-internet no agreed and i i think the bottom line though is we we need these large platforms to exist we the the, the things that we enjoy in life today are because these large companies provide them for us um and i would like to say we need to we have to trust them but but it should be more than that i think that these these laws are you know, essentially setting the rules for the playground about how yeah. we're going to operate. So Forcing that, the mitigation so that, of risk ahead of time. Yeah. So, you know, and hopefully like these companies will, will come along and they'll, they'll comply and, and, you know, they'll continue to thrive and I'll still be able to buy stuff from Amazon and you can get your Birkenstocks and we can, <laughs> I can watch things on YouTube and, you know, different social media platforms and, you know, we can keep doing all of those things, but do it in a way that we're, you know, it's it's fair for other companies to participate in the market, and I'm not being controlled or or influenced in a way that I that I don't want to be. So, because mm -hmm. I, I don't I don't I don't want to see content that I shouldn't be seeing, and I mm -hmm. don't want to be manipulated. I want, <laughs> so, I want my own balance for everyone. Yes, right, freedoms. So anyway, and I think that's what privacy all comes back to is is uh, freedoms and you Autonomy. know rights and privileges for individual for natural humans. Right? Isn't that what absolutely it's about? yes. Okay, well, we went down a couple of rabbit holes, but uh, as always, it was a, I know it was it was a good chat. So for um, everyone listening, think, we aim for twenty minute episodes, and somehow it turns into forty, and we're just I think we went over best. that. Yeah. <laughs> I, know. I don't know there was a lot of content here. I'll give us a break and a lot of great stories. So, um, with that, thank you for watching, everyone. Yeah, thanks for uh, thanks for listening or watching, however you're consuming this, and. Uh, tune in next time. We have no idea what we're talking about next time, but we'll figure it out. We'll know the before then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Bye, bye Rachel.